This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and director of NIU's STEM Read. Our topic today is future telling, past, present, and futurism. In this episode of the STEM Read podcast, we're bringing you an excerpt from the Future Telling webinar series, STEM Read's collaboration with NIU's University Libraries. I'll talk to experts in history and speculative fiction and hear how pandemics have shaped art and how this turbulent moment in world history is transforming the future of publishing and the science fiction genre. Our guests are Valerie Garver, a professor of history at Northern Illinois University, Lynn M. Thomas, the Hugo Award-winning publisher and editor of Uncanny Magazine, Mary Robinette Kowal, award-winning author of the Lady Astronauts series and president of the board of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and Maurice Broadus, community activist and author of Pimp My Airship and The Usual Suspects. The concept of the future-telling webinars comes from the idea that both scientists and writers are dreamers. They see the world as it is, imagine what it could be, and then work to make that dream possible. And even though their tools and methods are different, scientists and writers have been influencing each other for years. With Future Telling, we want to be more intentional about bringing together great thinkers across multiple disciplines. Here at NIU, we have the vast resources of our faculty and staff and students and alumni. We also have wonderful partnerships with Argonne National Laboratory, Fermilab, Tor Books, and the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. I'm excited for you to hear this excerpt. If you like the conversation, you can find the full webinar and see more of these free upcoming events at go.niu.edu slash futuretelling. The first interview you're going to hear is of historian Valerie Garver. After that, I join authors and publishing experts Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, and Lynn M. Thomas. Here's my interview with Valerie Garver. So my name is Valerie Garver, and I'm a professor of history at Northern Illinois University, and I'm also chair of the history department. But my research is on the Middle Ages, and I'm actually an early medievalist, but as the only medievalist at NIU, I teach about the entire period. So I definitely teach about epidemics in the Middle Ages. And in addition, I'm an expert on medieval textiles. And so I take a special interest in the history of textiles as well. One of my central questions is, how do epidemics and plagues affect art and literature? And what have you seen throughout your studies? They definitely have an effect. Some of the ways that they affect art and literature is, in some cases, people's direct responses to epidemics or disease. And sometimes it's just kind of reflection backwards on certain pandemics. So a good example and a very famous one, I would say, is Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron. I think many people know this text and may have read it at some point in their lives. It's definitely taken on new resonance, I think, with COVID-19. So more people are reading it now, I think, than maybe were reading it in the past. He was a Florentine writer, and he set 
this collection of stories at the time of the Black Death in Florence. And the conceit of the, the book is that these young Florentine men and women decide to kind of escape to the countryside to try to avoid getting the plague. And to entertain themselves, they tell each other stories. And so it's the collection, allegedly, of the stories they told each other. But the book includes, I would say, one of the most famous descriptions of the Black Death. And I would say historians have spent some time trying to decide how much it's accurate and how much it takes sort of a dramatic license to make it a better tale. In many respects, this is more reflection, not just upon the epidemic of the Black Death, but also kind of upon what is the nature of human relations. So there's a lot in the text about how do people relate to one another and framing it in this way, I think gives Boccaccio a good way of inviting his readers to ponder bigger issues while being entertained. Many of them are very entertaining stories. So you have that, but you also have cases where you have artists or people who are writing literature who respond, I would say, more directly to what they see around them. A 1349 manuscript illustration from the annals written by a Benedictine monk who lived in Chernai in Belgium. His name was Gilles Musset. He wrote an account of what he saw. There's a nice image in one of the manuscripts that was probably produced very close to the time. And it's interesting because it doesn't actually show people suffering from the Black Death. It shows people's kind of social response because it shows the preparation of coffins because so many people died in the Black Death. Now, estimates vary, but it could be around 30%. That's a pretty common percentage that's put out of the European population in Western Europe, and of course that's where Belgium is, would have died, and they died quite quickly. And this is a very unusual image because we think it was done very close to the time, actually, the Black Death. And that's something that, you know, you can look at later pandemics, like say the flu pandemic in 1918, which I now feel like so many people have seen images of that in the news. And you can see there's lots and lots of photographs. And that is such a valuable source now for historians and art historians to look at. But you can also see it's kind of an immediate response. And that kind of thing is sometimes lacking in a world before photography. But we also have an image of the formation of flagellants there. So this was a religious response to the Black Death that occurred in some especially northern European towns. And these individuals thought that the Black Death was a punishment from God for sin. And so they would walk in processions, often whipping themselves, hence the name flagellants. In some cases, it's not just that the artists are sort of recording or responding to, say, social unrest, but they're also leaving a kind of record or consideration of how people tried to deal with the pandemic and how maybe they thought they could stop it. And you can see responses to the Black Death for a long time afterwards, especially because bubonic plague recurred in Europe and also, of course, in other parts of the world. But a good example is the Dance of Death. These are scenes that I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with. And there's a really nice book out by a woman named Alina Gertzman about the Dance of Death that's pretty recent, which if anyone's really interested in that, it's a great book to check out. And the idea of these Dances of Death images is that they're showing people from all walks of life, everyone from like a ruler to just like a merchant and men and women, old and young. The idea was that everyone recognized the Black Death didn't spare anyone. 
right? And it would, these were kind of images that were meant to prepare people for death, to say, you should take care of your sins, you should atone, you should ponder the fact that your life may be cut short. These were both religious images, but they're very reflective of a response to how people dealt with this really horrific pandemic at the time. It's interesting that you mentioned the unrest going hand in hand with these pandemics. So you have that artistic response, a literary response, and then you have the civil unrest. Do you think that some of the things that are happening today are mirroring that cycle of response to the pandemic? I think it is possible to draw a few parallels, even if they're pretty imperfect. And one is that I think anytime you have something that's this frightening or this life altering, because even though the death rates are much lower from COVID-19 than from the Black Death, it certainly has changed how we all behave and the kinds of things that we can or cannot do, even the kinds of things we wear and how we go about our daily life. And so that's very unsettling. The other thing that I would say is kind of parallel in addition to the kind of unsettling nature of any pandemic would be the economic repercussions. Clearly COVID-19 is having some really terrible economic repercussions. And I think it remains to be seen what exactly will happen with that. But the Black Death, that definitely caused major changes in the economy, in the labor market, land holding, social historians, economic historians, they've done a really amazing job of sort of going back and trying to see how did the Black Death transform many of these aspects of life. And I think it's really startling, even to me, like as I reteach or think about these issues, just how much you can talk about in some cases, what was the labor market like prior to the Black Death versus after? Like it's a, it's a big turning point. So drawing from your historical context, what do you see as a possible future for art and literature as a response to this pandemic? I will just offer one thing, which is I think that epidemic disease just never goes away in literature. I think it's something that people have always either been fascinated by, horrified by. It's kind of a voyeuristic thing, reading sometimes about pandemics or terrible epidemic disease. And so you see it in quite a lot of literature and um, also in films. And so I think that will not go away. The textile arts are a place where we are definitely going to see a lot happening. The company Polina Strada, they have a line of masks that they're, they've been making that are made from their dead stock material from past collections. So basically, this is a line that, excuse me, company that emphasizes sustainability. So what they're saying is we can take our leftover fabric from our past collections of clothing and we can repurpose it into really striking beautiful masks. Now on the one hand, you can look at this and say, well, it's you know a commodity and they're profiting from this. But on the other hand, one can look at this from a kind of public health perspective and say, if you make masks that people want to wear, that are a striking statement for them, that make them feel like I am making a statement to the world, you can maybe able to get some more people to wear masks. In addition, I really wanna highlight quilters. I think they're such an important group of artists, especially right now. And 
there are a couple ways to kind of think about what they're doing. Very quickly, scientists figured out that quilting fabric is really excellent fabric for face coverings. It's quite effective and very breathable. And quilters are, of course, talented sewers, and they could just immediately kind of rise to the challenge and sew masks. In addition, especially during the initial lockdowns, they had access to troves of fabric that they could like dive into and make masks. And so um, we've seen a lot of quilters kind of rise to the challenge. And I think this is something that will eventually, I hope, be artistically more documented. There are definitely quilter groups and there are folk art experts who are already gathering kind of examples of how quilters respond in this way in terms of providing some form of PPE, sometimes even making gowns. But I kind of thought very early on, I would imagine the quilters will eventually have responses that are similar to the responses that we see with, or saw, excuse me, with the AIDS epidemic. So the one that I think many people are familiar with is the NAMES Project AIDS Memorial Quilt by Cleve Jones. And the quilt was so large because there had been so many individuals memorialized that it covered the entire National Mall. But there are definitely quilts that have already been made, both quilts that quilters have made in order to raise money. So they are selling the quilts and then providing the money, say, to food banks or something like that, but also specific quilts meant to kind of memorialize the moment. And I was really struck by a quilt by Silvia Hernandez, who's a master quilter and also an activist. And I think this is a really striking quilt because you just are the coronavirus right in the center of it is just really draws the eye, but you can see this idea of promoting the right action that may save people from it. And it's a really, I think, striking quilt. But certainly, I think in other areas of art, we're going to definitely see responses. There have been responses to many epidemic diseases. I know there was a nice New York Times piece about artistic responses with a lot of paintings, actually, from different epidemics over the years. And so I'd imagine that we just have to wait and see where this epidemic causes artists to respond in certain ways. So I would imagine that. And certainly the last thing I would mention is, as a historian, I'm well aware of the desire to memorialize, which is an impulse that humans have had for a very long time. And so I'd imagine that eventually there will be memorials to those who died of COVID-19, probably specific memorials for the frontline healthcare workers, people like that. So I would imagine at some point that will start to happen as well. Now more than ever, we can tell like this is history. We are, we are in a point in history that's going to be remembered. So do you have any advice for people in documenting those first person experiences that they're having right now? Yes. As a historian, I would say it's really important to have a wide variety of records. You know, there have already been efforts to encourage people to keep, say, journals. And I think there's a lot of great journal prompts out there. So even if you're someone you're like, I don't even know what to write in a journal, no one would be interested in anything I have to say. There have been some really effective prompts that have been provided by people, like, and also even for kids, right? That this is how you can write and kind of respond to it. So journals are great. But I also think there are things like ephemera that I think are worth keeping. For example, I've noticed a lot of like comic strips have been responding and you can see that because my, my kids love comics. And so I've been seeing this and even I have kept a few because I think that's like an important thing to keep. But like even ephemera, like things like grocery store receipts, 
you know, just sort of a memory of what was it that I bought because people are buying in a different way. That's the kind of thing historians will later study. Like what did the average grocery store receipt look like during the lockdown versus before? Because, you know, that would let us measure things like were people really buying up all that toilet paper, <laughs> you know? But also I think an artistic response is a really valuable thing. And even if, you know, you don't think of yourself as necessarily artistic, it can be a good thing to try. And especially there's a lot of efforts, I think, by some artists and certain museums and things like that to try to promote making art at home. First of all, to give some people who, who need an outlet at home something to do. But also, I think it will create like a folk art response potentially that will be really, really valuable. And the other thing is, of course, photos. I mean, people should definitely be taking photographs. And I would say the more mundane, the better <laughs> as a historian, because sometimes it's the stuff that people think is a bit dull or something that actually historians can end up being really, really fascinated by. You know, I've seen pictures and from the flu pandemic, 1918, just like someone actually took a photograph of like the stores say that someone had in the hospital. That's very valuable evidence and just kind of gives an indication of like what's going on. And I know people have been charmed by things like I know there's a great photograph out there of a family during that flu pandemic where they made a mask for their dog. <laughs> I mean, just like that kind of record, that's the kind of thing that can really get lost. So I would say anything people can do to record it and also just, okay, you can't keep everything. And I know there's a great desire to declutter, but sometimes it's good just to keep a few things around because objects also become a really great way later that you can talk about what happened. And as a historian, I certainly hope that people will someday still be taking kind of oral histories of what's happening now. There's a lot of oral history projects right now that are starting up to document how people have experienced COVID-19 and experienced the lockdown and things like that. But I would imagine 30, 40 years from now, there'll be a lot of people who really want to take oral histories from people who live through a much longer kind of experience of it to kind of compare it to people's initial responses. And sometimes I think having like objects or a diary or something that helps you rethink or try to remember is, is valuable in and of itself for that purpose, or even just to maybe tell your grandchildren, right? You just heard my interview with Valerie Garver. Up next, authors and publishing experts Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, and Lynn M. Thomas. We'll react to Valerie's interview and provide thoughts on everything from pandemics to flying cars. Hi, I'm Lynn Thomas. In my day job, I am the head of the Rare Book and Manuscript Library at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I was, before that, the head of the Rare Book and Special Collections Department at Northern Illinois University. I am also the co-editor-in-chief and co-publisher of Uncanny Magazine, which is a Hugo Award-winning sci-fi and fantasy online magazine. And we miss you very much at NIU. Hi, I'm Mary Robinette Kowal. I am also a science fiction and fantasy writer. My papers are archived at NIU, and I'm the president of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. My name is Maurice Broadus. I'm also a science fiction and fantasy author. I'm also a middle grade teacher. Well, I also work as part of the Carl Brandon Society, and I'm also on the board of the Ray Bradbury Center. And then uh, I do a lot of uh, community development work here in town uh, with a group called the uh, Kepper Institute, where I'm their resident Afrofuturist. 
We heard from Valerie Garver, our historian. First, I'd like you to react to that. And then I want to know, my big question is, how is this moment in history with this collision of all these historical events, both the the epidemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and everything else that's going on, how is that affecting the state of science fiction. So I'm, I'm going to jump in. So uh, the Decameron has been one of my favorite pieces of literature for decades. And I was so excited to see Valerie drawing those connections. For me, one of the things that is true about any form of art is that it always reflects what is in the front of the author's mind. And that is usually current events. And you can see that when you look at science fiction through the history of science fiction during the the atomic era, that's when you get the golden age of science fiction, where everyone is very concerned about like all of the ships are are, uh, atomic powered. Everything, it's like atomic all the time. You know, when is the A-bomb going to go off? Then you've got the green movement, uh, which is reflecting with green punk. You have the information age, which gives us cyberpunk. Uh, We're seeing a lot of dystopians that have been around climate change happening. And I'm predicting that, you know, we're going to wind up with stuff about pandemics. The the novel that I'm writing, which is uh, right now, which is set... 20, 30 years in the future, I'm suddenly like, oh, it's completely unrealistic that none of these characters have masks. I think it's too soon to know exactly how it will affect, but I I think that we are going to see a lot of things that are coming out about being confined. I think that that one of the challenges of being in the middle of a historic moment when you're living through it is that, you know, most of the time we go through our lives and we aren't thinking about the fact that we're living through a historic moment. We're just trying to get through the day, the week, the deadline, the child care, the parent care, the experience of living. When you have the realization that you are also living in a historic moment, Behaviors change, patterns change, your approach to everything changes. Sometimes that's a conscious choice, and sometimes it's just how the weirdness leaks when it when you react to it. And I think that that's one of the things that we're starting to see across the country is that when you have this combination of a convergence of multiple historic events, it's a moment where people are suddenly cognizant that they are living in a historic moment in a way that they've not had to really think about. And the weight of that is something that often triggers responses that are different than they might be if they weren't thinking about the fact that they're living in a historic moment. Everything feels like it has much more weight, even what brand of toilet paper you're going to buy, assuming there's more than one brand in the store at any given time. Because now the fact that there's two brands means that there's historic weight that they got the supply chain sorted enough that you have a choice of brands, as opposed to buying the one package that is still left when you made it to the target. So I think that that's one of the big things that changes art and changes our response to how we live is just that the experiential weight of living through a truly historic moment is one that adds a layer of trauma and emotional burden to folks that may or may not have coping mechanisms for that, depending on what their life circumstances are. And so you have folks who are going through trauma for the very first time, and you have folks who have been through trauma who are being re-traumatized, and that adds additional layers of fun times for everybody going through a major historic event or seven simultaneously. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we always talk about is the fact that, you know, we're right now, we're yes, we're experiencing twin pandemics, both with the racial oppression and with COVID-19. Well, a couple of different things. So one, we don't think in terms of post-pandemic, period. We just go, you know, we just have to, we're all about creating the new normal. What is going to be the new normal moving forward? 
Um, there's no point in wishing for the the good old days or the, the BC times uh, before COVID. No, it's about we are in this moment now. We adapt now. We move forward from here. So what does that look like? We are at a crossroads. We have opportunity here to create a new normal. The twin pandemics have revealed cracks in the system, showing where um, where the system hasn't always served all of us. And so now we have opportunities to tear down some of those institutions and, and practices that, that weren't working for us and, and the opportunity to create something new. So and one of the key things has always been, how do we keep an adaptive mindset in order to you know, ch- be challenged by the moment and move forward in the moment? Well, I love that Maurice brought up the idea of opportunity. I think certainly in all of your work, there is a hopefulness for the future. Um, Mary Robinette, your Lady Astronaut series, deals with a catastrophe of, on a world scale. And reading it, certainly you think like, oh, yeah, I should be uh, rationing food and uh, preparing to go to space right now, too. Um, <laughs> but how how does that idea of opportunity play into science fiction or where all of you hope science fiction will lead? Humans are made of narrative. So the thing that I'm interested in is narratives that shape kind of ideas towards a future that I want to live in, which is a towards a, a future that is more hopeful and inclusive. That sometimes means you have to smash a meteor into the earth. But the other thing for me about science fiction and fantasy that I think we have Um, as a leg up over some of the other forms, is that we're able to provide people with kind of a a metaphor with which to examine things that are happening in in our current lives. It's one of the reasons I'm often attracted to historical fiction, and then add that additional layer of the science fiction on top of it, because it puts things at just enough of a remove that you can have a conversation about things that are happening right now. There are race riots and uh, that are happening in my novels because they're set in the 1950s and 60s, and the reason they're still happening now is because it's a problem that we still haven't fixed. So this cyclical thing that keeps happening, which also then means that a reader can apply that same pattern and look forward into the future, into the kind of Afrofuturism that, that Maurice writes. Right. And so for me, in my fiction, uh, especially currently, it's always been about, you know, dreaming about the future. So with, with Afrofuturism, I mean, Afrofuturism itself is, it's, it's rooted in the past, but critiques the present, but it always looks towards the future. I remember uh, the uh, Tanana Du said that uh, even the act of uh, dreaming of ourselves in the future is an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. And I've always sort of carried that to, to heart. And so for me, it's all about Again, I keep coming back to this whole idea of opportunity because we have the opportunity to dream of, of new futures. And, and I just cannot overstate the importance of that enough. In fact, so much so that uh, it's actually impacted our community work in a very real way. So now even the language you use in our community work is about how do we go about creating our desired future state? It's always like we, we have this now. We exist now. And, and a lot of organizations live in the, well, we have to survive today. We have to survive today. And then they don't allow themselves room to dream about what tomorrow could look like. So we have the opportunity as, as creatives, we get to, to dream about the future, to dream about the endless possibilities that, that, that could happen. And then by doing that, and by casting that vision, now we have the opportunity to say, all right, if that's where we want to be, if that's what, who, we, uh, who we want to be and what we want to be, then what are the steps we can take in the present in order to get there? And I, I think that's one of the, the critical roles that we have as artists, as creatives, and as storytellers. 
Absolutely. I mean, from an editorial perspective, both Maurice and Mary Robinette are correct. The act of envisioning a future existence is a radical act of hope, and the kinds of stories that we often look for at Uncanny are stories that are focused on the hopeful part of survival and perseverance because, well, because one of the best ways to tell a story is to torture the heck out of your characters. But perseverance and hope are the things that make it worth getting through the part where you're torturing your characters. So I think that's one of the big challenges, too, is that when you're in the middle of a historical event and, you're, and you've got the sort of additional weight of the knowledge of that sitting on you, I think it makes it sometimes more challenging to approach things hopefully because... It's not a naive kind of hopefulness. It is a hopefulness that is firmly rooted in the struggle that is ongoing. And, and it requires, I think, a certain amount of stubbornness that lends itself to the perseverance that gets us through to the new normal. Like many folks who are trying to figure out what the new normal looks like in their workplaces right now, I'm doing that in the day job. And, you know, we keep talking about the before times and the new normal and having to make that distinction because we realize that the way that we used to do things literally isn't going to work for the foreseeable future, and we need to embrace that and use it as an opportunity to rethink the way that we provide services, particularly in a end-of-the-field in rare books where the emphasis for decades has been on in-person interaction with physical materials. Uh, and now we're trying to pivot our entire business to how do we provide these services remotely? How do we how do we make this a valuable experience when you can't actually touch or smell or feel the book in front of you because it's being handled by someone on the other end of the internet? The fact that we are thinking through this and saying that we can do it is an act of hope. We're saying that there is still value in the work that we do, even if the way that we are providing those services is going to be radically different for the foreseeable future. Ooh, I'm seeing virtual reality and virtual smell pods. Like, get your, get your book <laughs> smell. <laughs> so all of you are science fiction authors and storytellers and story sharers. Um, what is your relationship to science? And do you see yourselves as science communicators or science ambassadors? Well, I do have a degree in biology and was spent 20 years as an environmental toxicologist. So not that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And actually, it's it's interesting because I actually hadn't used my science degree in the bulk of my writing until recently. Mm. Um, and it's only been recently, in fact, with dreaming about, about the future. It's like, wait, what what could things look like, you know, 100 years from now? And then all of a sudden it's like, man, I got to dust that thing <laughs> off and uh, start putting it to use again. But in order to have that science drive uh, drive the stories and, and then communicate it in such a way that uh, people aren't feeling preached at or aren't feeling like, well, you know, he's just trying to teach me something, you know. So uh, it's, it's been interesting sort of, uh, you know, delving back into my roots there. So for me, it's a little bit different because I don't have a background in science, really. And so I'm the ultimate dumb reader as an editor. If I can't understand the science that a writer has presented in the story, then we know that the science needs to be rewritten in a way that it's more parsable for an audience that doesn't understand the science. So that's my major role is saying this is not comprehensible to a layperson. We need to find a better way to communicate these concepts uh, so that you can use this to drive the story. And then we can go back and do the accuracy checking. But, you know, for me, it's much more about serving as a person who can help bridge the gap between information and information that is parcelable by someone who does not have immediate expertise. Yeah, and I, I was an art major in college and then went on to have a 25-year career in puppetry. So, uh, no. But I... Um, <laughs> 
I love science. Like I actually wanted to be a, uh, a veterinarian up until my senior year of high school. And I'm in science fiction, partly because it was what I read, but also because it gives me the opportunity to indulge my natural curiosity in ways that are socially acceptable. And I, I don't have to feel, um, I, I don't have to do the math, right? Um, someone else can do all of the, the math for me and I can just put it into my novels and make it look like I'm real smart and I'm not in that particular area. But I did wind up backing into being, I think, a science communicator because I have been doing so much research about space and because I am so enthusiastic about it. I'll wind up doing live tweets of like spacewalks or launches where I'm translating for people and giving them like giving them bits and pieces from the backstage tours that I've gotten to do and all of the stuff that I can't fit into the books. It's just it's just so cool. So yes, but it wasn't on purpose. I think it's funny that your main character is a mathematician. <laughs> and you... I did not do any of the math. I treat it like a magic system. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if you pay attention to the novel, she sounds like she's doing math at the beginning because I mentioned the pieces of a couple of, of, of an equation. And then after that, it's just, and then Elma did math. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you do work with experts from NASA. NASA has been very generous. Actually, everyone has been very generous. So I have the science in the novels are, is as accurate and close to being correct as I can get it which means for anything that the character is going to interact with directly. Uh, so that means that all of my space stuff is, uh, is on point. I worked with an epidemiologist because I have a polio outbreak. So worked with an epidemiologist and a couple of emergency room doctors and orthopedic surgeon as well. Oh, and uh, two flight surgeons to figure out how you would react to something like polio or an epidemic on the moon. It has been shockingly useful research for this present that I find myself in. Uh, one of the things I realize I've been doing a lot in terms of researching for, for my current series is the, the whole idea of the soft sciences. Mm. Um, I've been talking to a lot of the, uh, what I call them, social practitioners uh, when it comes to uh, community work. When it's, and so it's like, hey, psychologists or sociologists, or, or actually, I guess, uh, even without those formal titles, it's how are we as a people? How do we how do we move through this world? How could we move? How, what would you like to see in terms of communities and, and community living and, and, and relationships? And so it's been a, an interesting, and I've been doing this for like a, about the last year and a half, going around to different groups and sort of like dreaming alongside them um, in terms of like, all right, so if we could tear down, because like, like Mary Robinette, you know, this is not my background, but if I wanted to re redo an entire economic system, you know, what could that look like? What would it look like to create a system where relationships are at the core of it? What could that look like? How, how could we reorganize as, as people? What, uh, just to, this, just the idea of just dreaming about different possibilities, just to come up with entirely new ways that we can just move through this space as we recreate that space. I do want to touch on the aspect of community because all of you are involved in one way or another in community building, both in your actual communities and then within the education community and the science fiction community. So how is the pandemic changing the way that we think about community? How is it changing the way that you seek to build community? And what do you hope will come from that? I think it makes it more difficult in some ways because a lot of the practices we had for building community in the before times involved spending time together in person. And for most folks, 
particularly neurotypical folks, it's one of the easiest ways to get to know someone is to spend time with them in person because we have this whole interstitial language of body language and facial expressions that we use as part of our methods of communicating. There have been studies about the fact that doing similar types of interpretation in face-to-face -face interactions online takes essentially more brain cycles and more energy than it does when you're in person face-to-face. -face. I think that's one of the bigger changes is that sort of the mental load of doing that kind of community building work has a steeper price than it did uh, before the outbreak. I think a lot of the organizational aspects of community building have stayed exactly the same because those happen through the internet, over the telephone, through text messaging and things like that. I mean, the technology that we have to communicate with each other in a rather instantaneous way, particularly in the middle of things like protests and dangerous situations means that we have a lot more ways of keeping each other safe. And that's an important aspect of community building as well that is enhanced by the fact that we live in the future where the internet is relatively pervasive in most places and we can contact each other pretty easily for the most part, digital divide aside. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot, especially with the challenges, the challenges of uh, doing grassroots community organizing, for example. So like Lynn said, you know, so we, a lot, of, a lot of our work had been done in person. I mean, I, I think of the three groups, like, uh, you know, me as a middle school t uh, teacher, you know, trying to wrangle middle schoolers, or me in the writing community trying to wrangle writers, which does look a lot like trying to wrangle middle schoolers. And then, and then on top of that, the community organizing work. Well, there's some of the work has to still be done in person. I mean, because uh, we live in a food desert, and so we network uh, neighborhood gardeners uh, in order to, you know, get the produce and then distribute the produce. Well, some of that work has to be done in person. There still has to be the boots on the ground sort of work. So now it's a matter of, all right, well, how do we care for one another during these times? How do we keep one another safe? And yes, we do have these different tools of, of the Zoom and all, all the all of the tools that I'm now so, so sick of. <laughs> One of the things we realize is that, you know, the core philosophy is actually still the same. It's always about who is the person in front of you. How do you listen to them? How do you continue to learn their story? How, how do you continue to attend to their needs and, and, and read them and, and have them read you? Because it still boils down to being people-centered work. Um, and as long as you keep track of that, you can still do things of, like, how, what does it look like to connect with them? Uh, what does it look like to support them? Uh, what does it look like to pursue relationship with, with your neighbor, for example? So if you keep in front of you the whole idea that, you know, when all said and done, it's about connecting to another human being. I just let that be my, my guidepost for doing the work and moving it forward. The thing that I think a lot of people are craving is the, the thing that we have lost is random one-on-one -on -one encounters. You know, that that's something that would happen to you if you go to a convention. It's something that would happen if you are in your neighborhood and you're you're out or at an office that you, you bump into someone that you know and you have a random, short, brief one on one encounter. It was a, an article that I read several years ago about how you make friends um, and why it's so difficult after a certain point in your life. And one of the things that they said that was a, a key thing was these random chance, small meetings and repeated random small meetings, and then an opportunity to have solo conversation. So what I've been trying to do is create uh, opportunities for that. I have a, a daily co-working session, uh, two hours uh, every day during the week. 
that people can drop into. And then one of the things that we've been doing is uh, much like with the nebulas, where you can break into smaller groups, making it easy for people to split off into smaller groups. And I've also been making a conscious effort to make appointments with friends. It's not random, but it's make appointments with friends for one-on-one -on -one time, even if we aren't in person. And that has been making a big difference. The other thing that I encourage other people to do, uh, I was reaching for social media a lot because I was lonely, right? And I wanted that sense of community. And the problem is that it's this diffuse thing and it's not a sustained conversation. So what I have begun doing instead is I will just, uh, I've got a couple of friends uh, and I will randomly text them a picture like of my cat. And we'll have a little bit of a conversation, you know, and then we both move on with our day. But it's it is my version of trying to create that random bump into you in the hallway as a way to try to mimic the thing that I'm missing. There is one thing that I'm going to push back on that that Lynn said, because this piece of science makes me batty, uh, which is the idea that somehow seeing you is harder than talking on the phone or writing a letter. This rhetoric that we see about how much more difficult it is to communicate in Zoom is actually rhetoric that we saw with the invention of the telephone, with the penny post. You know, it's like the letter is going back and forth too frequently. People were meant to contemplate their letters for long periods of time. This is not actually that this takes more processing power. It's that it's a new paradigm and we're still adjusting to it. So there's my soapbox. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed standing on it. Also fair, and, and and this is confirmation bias since I just loathe the telephone. <laughs> fair. You were meant for another time. I'd, I'd like to actually echo uh, Mary Robinette's uh, point about uh, that, that random interaction. I, I made a, a joke on Twitter about turning my porch into my coffee shop since I no longer could go to the coffee shop. So I said, well, I'm just going to sit on my porch, and then my neighbors then become my the regulars at my coffee shop. I made that joke about three weeks ago. It's like the universe decided, no, no. That's actually going to become a thing. And so I've had neighbors randomly drop by to, and, and they'll social distance on the porch, but suddenly we're having these random interactions. And then, uh, and then I noticed that like some of the artists in town who do crave that companionship and do crea uh, crave that wanting to be around other creatives, well, they'll just sort of schedule time to, hey, is the coffee shop open? We're just going to come and, and just hang out at the coffee shop. And I'm just like, I, I kind of love this. I could do this for a while, just so you all know. Yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned food deserts in your work, Maurice, and I want to do a little pitch for The Ache of Home, your story that appeared in Uncanny Magazine that wove together everything from food deserts to urban fantasy in such an amazing way. I really loved it and urban gardening as well. So thank you. Thank you to Maurice and Lynn for that story. That was great. I think we're getting to a point where we are inching towards talking about activism in sci-fi. <laughs> so I, I want to know your thoughts on that as, as we're building community, as we're seeing things move forward. How do you think as a community sci-fi will or will not react to this moment? How does this kind of collide with own voices and representation and disability in sci-fi, all of those things? I was going to say the first thing to remember is that the science fiction community is not a monolith. That is exactly what I was um, going to say. Those exact words. Different parts of the community are going to react in different ways depending upon what those parts of the community view as their particular strengths 
their particular lane, their particular areas where they can exert influence and or help push change or action, to a certain extent, you're not going to get a singular experience from the science fiction community because everybody's going to react differently and make different choices based on what they feel they can bring to the table. I've been conducting interviews for our new assistant editor for Uncanny, and one of the things we're talking about is sort of framing what we think our lane is in the science fiction community in terms of providing a platform, particularly for own voices stories, but providing a platform so that different kinds of stories from perspectives that have been less well represented historically are available to as many folks as we can possibly make them. And that's what we feel our lane is. That to us is activism in the same way that publishing a series of nonfiction articles about how to safely protest if you're going to an in-person protest is activism in our lane. I'm not in a position to go physically to a protest for myself, but I can aid other people who are doing that work. And so that's one of the, you know, that's what we determined our lane was, but that's very much based on our situation and our bandwidth and our ability and the platform that we've developed. I was going to say all of those things, except not about uncanny, um, <laughs> which is ironic since we were both starting with, uh, with the premise that culture is not a monolith. But it is, but I think it is, really, really important to understand that um, everybody who comes into this has a different set of tools. And, uh, and that's, you know, that has to do with the privilege that you have, but also the way your own brain works and the way you interact with things. Um, I have the, the tool right now of being the president of science fiction and fantasy writers of America, and also having a board that is incredibly, incredibly functional like they they really work very well together and have a common vision and so the thing that we have been doing is making choices about staffing to make sure that we are actively going after and recruiting people from from communities that have traditionally been marginalized for leadership positions so that we are, uh, you know, we're, we're opening things up and, and trying to make sure that we're addressing this problem, you know, as close to top down as we can, because other people are doing the very hard work of coming at it and addressing it from different directions. My community work informs my writing and my writing informs my community work. So it, it, it's, it's something that, that builds on each other. And so that, I, I do have a certain intentionality to, to my writing and, and I will just cop to that. But that being said, it, you know, one of those things is, uh, like you brought, brought up Ache of Home. Um, I love writing Ache of Home, but Ache of Home came at a cost. I got called into the principal's office because there were, you know, there were real world politics involved with that. Uh, and there were some city officials who took offense that I was criticizing and, or critiquing some of their methods of, of how they moved through the city. Yes, I got called into the principal's office, but I'm also going to count that as a victory because I mean, that's literally the job of science fiction. I mean, we, we are pushing back on institutions, holding them accountable. And if they felt held accountable, good. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people who think that science fiction is is just escapist fair. And I think that there's nothing wrong with escapist fair. Like, that, that serves a useful function as well. But I do think that if you're not examining and, and questioning the... The biases that you come into it with, um, if you're not questioning the society that you're writing into, that you're missing out on on what it can do. You're missing out on opportunities. And there's nothing that says you can't have something that is good, fun, escapist, fair, 
and also social commentary. And and also, I, I tend to think that everything is social commentary. It's just whether or not you're doing it on purpose. Well, and it's also whether the social commentary is coming from a perceived default or not. All art is not neutral. There's no such thing as neutral art. If you think that the art that you are consuming or creating is neutral, that just means that you're doing it from the position of being in the cultural default, whatever that happens to be, which, you know, in today's terms tends to be white, heterosexual, male folks. That is a perspective, it is not the only perspective, but it's not a neutral perspective. And, it, and that, I think, is something that we're all grappling with in this time, is that there was a perception for years and years and years that there was a neutral position, and that's simply not true. Folks who thought that their perspectives were completely culturally neutral are now realizing that that is not the case. And that's new information for them. Um, and processing that information takes a while sometimes. Uh, and it's challenging because folks think, oh, I just want some escapist fare. But again, if your escapist fare only has people that look and function exactly like you, you're only providing an escape for people who look and function exactly like you. And that's not everyone in the universe by any stretch of the imagination. What advice do you have for some of the people uh, who are creators and writers in the audience right now? How are you facing this moment as creators and writers? How are you getting through the day? <laughs> what do you see as, as your hope for the future right now to stay creative? <laughs> so during the first month of the pandemic, the first month of the lockdown, I'd hit this huge, huge block. I mean, there, I, there was just a move up. No words were being put on the page. No. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I mean, I knew, I mean, yes, I'm at home, but, you know, being at home shouldn't have been a stress for me. But I just couldn't figure out, you know, how, how I was going to punch through this wall. Because I, I, I had a novel due. <laughs> and so the idea of going a whole month with no words on the page was starting to, we'll just say, cause some mild anxiety for me, my agent, and my editor. We'll just say. And then, uh, Mary Robinette, you'll love this. <laughs> Some of the writers from the Writing Excuses cruise reached out to me. We had had this I group called the B13 group, and that was, uh, yeah. And B13 referred to where we'd meet on the ship, and uh, we'd get, meet there late at night in our pajamas, and we'd just write. And that's all we would do. And so they reached out, and they were like, hey, we want to reunite the group and, and just do it over Skype. You know, would you be interested? And I was like, sure, let's try that. And so, and there, there were like 10 of us who got together. And and I, and I was like, hey, I'm actually I'm actually starting to write. We wrote together for like four hours straight. And I'm like, wait a second. I wonder if that's what I was missing. This uh, this whole idea of, or maybe that, or not not what I was missing because I never wrote like that before. But the whole idea of, you know, I'm we are in this new moment. We could have to muddle through it together. Uh, after that sort of breakthrough moment, then I reached out to a couple of friends and said, hey, what would it look like for us to regularly log into Zoom Monday through Friday? tend to whenever, and just, if nothing else, just be in the background of each other, to sort of lightly hold each other accountable, or just to just be, have that energy of presence with one another. So I started that, and then all of a sudden, no, that was the big breakthrough uh, for me. I ended up writing, well, I won't even tell you how much I've written in the, in the last couple of months, but my editors and agents are all very happy right now uh, with, my, with my level of productivity. But it all boiled down to, this, I, I think, it's just that, that invisible support the relationships offer. Yeah. I've been doing writing dates for years. So I, I deal with depression on a regular. Um, and it has unsurprisingly been a problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've basically been deploying every coping mechanism I've, I've ever had in my entire life and kind of cycling through them going, is this one going to work? All right. 
Um, but like Maurice, I set up uh, writing dates. The reason that they work is there's a thing that we do as, as people call mirroring. It's where in person, if I pick up my water glass, there's a lot of people in the audience right now who have water nearby and they're like, oh yeah, I am thirsty. And we'll, you know, if you want to make someone else comfortable, you'll you'll take on their body posture. It's a form of peer pressure, but it's not like a conscious pushing. It's 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 this thing that you do to, to belong. And so when you're in a room full of other people who are writing, you're like, oh, I guess that's the thing that I should be doing right now. And so it's it's super useful to have other people who are writing. It, it helps your brain prioritize and understand the task that you're supposed to be doing. And it gives you permission and space to do that thing. But the other thing that I would say for people um, who are struggling is one, it's okay to take time off. Uh, two, if it's not okay to take time off, you can do iterations of a thing. So do the piece of it that is the easiest. Like if you're good at dialogue, just put the dialogue down on page and then go back in and layer your description. Uh, if you are really good at plot, throw some plot down on the page and then flesh it out later. Just go ahead and, and work on easy setting. It's it's completely fine. It's like going to the gym after you've been sick for a while. You step back on your routine. You, you go the, the, the easier things. Uh, those are all completely fine. And if if you really need to, I, mean, I, I say this as if it's an extreme thing, but here's a thing that I highly recommend is write some fanfic. Just go someplace that is comfortable and happy to remind yourself that writing is not stressful, that it's something that you can do just because you love it, that there's no purpose in it other than just to satisfy yourself and, and just to play with craft. It doesn't have to be anything that's going to fit into a canon. It doesn't have to be a complete story. Like, write, write something about Captain America having tea with Peggy, you know? Just something pleasant. And then, and, and then there's a bomb. But whatever. Just do something pleasant. This is something that I've been struggling with sort of at the opposite end. Both Mary Robinette and Maurice have talked sort of about battling kind of isolation in the sense of needing the or craving the the mirroring experience. Because in my day job, I'm I, I've sold out. I'm on the dark side. I'm an administrator now. I'm having the opposite problem of I just I, I've had meetings upon meetings upon meetings. So by the time I get to the end of my work day, the very last thing I wish to do is to spend time looking at other people on the internet. What I want to do is be under a blanket with a, with an adult beverage and murder she wrote because that's about the bandwidth I have at that point. So for me, the big struggle during the pandemic has been being able to spend 20 minutes working on uncanny email in the evening because again, I'm doing the I'm doing the next right thing that feels like it's within my bandwidth, even if it's okay. I can spend 15 minutes turning around contracts. I can do that. I can spend 10 minutes paying people. Well, that's it. I'm done for the night. But that's progress. So that's been the thing for me is is boundaries, um, actually taking care of myself. I am eating better, though, because we're cooking for ourselves a lot more often. My ice cream intake has not been quite as epic as I anticipated, which is kind of nice. We're, we're seeing a lot of things from the 1918 pandemic. We're thinking a lot about our place in history. So where do you want to see things in the next hundred years? How do you want this moment to be remembered? How do you hope that we will have come out of it? Let's do some dreaming together now, some future telling of our own. The problem that I think we're probably all going to run into is that I don't 
be any realistic way out of the moment that we're in without bloodshed, uh, based on, on historical patterns. But historically speaking, what's going to happen is that it's going to get real, real bad. It feels bad right now. It's going to get worse. And then there's going to be a period of enormous hope and prosperity and regrowth. And the challenge that we're going to have, and this is why like looking a hundred years out is, is a challenge, is that the other thing that always happens after a period of enormous hope and, and prosperity and growth is that there's a pushback and the people for whom there has been prosperity and growth have become complacent and let progress I say let as if it's, and I am thinking specifically um, about feminism, because that is, that's something that I have some direct experience with. But the number of young women that have told me that they've never experienced sexism, and then you start talking to them, and they have, but it's just something that's so ingrained, they think of it as this thing that had happened to other people in the past. They think of the worst examples and they don't see the things that are still happening and the, the slow erosion of progress that is made. Certainly when you look at what happened after the Civil War with the Reconstruction and the, and the New Jim Crow laws, when you look at the Civil Rights Movement, it's really hard to map a pattern for the future uh, that is a beautiful, hopeful one because it requires a couple of things. It requires someone in a leadership position to set the tone. And then it also requires a groundswell of people who are unwilling to let the status quo stand and will fight to maintain that new status quo. That, no, that's literally the plot of my of, of my of my sci-fi novel. Yeah, you know, because I originally was trying to go, all right, well, what could it look like for black people to establish our, our own uh, intergalactic kingdom a thousand years in the future? And then, uh, and I start mapping out that timeline. I realize I can't think a thousand years in the future, but I can map out, you know, what the next hundred years or so might look like. And uh, and it does mirror exactly what, what Mary Robinette said, a collapse of many of the systems are brought about by any of a number of either pandemics or climate changes. You know, collapse is coming. That being said, there will be a time of that, uh, that sort of rebirth, uh, that time of healing, that time of dreaming together. And then new things can grow and new things can uh, flourish, and uh, and that it's at that point that I pick up with the book. I, I'm gonna, you know, go into that moment of hope and go. You know what? Ah, we're good here. Uh, so it's the idea of first the collapse, then the healing, then the growth. So uh, that, that's kind of where where, uh, where my head's at. Mary Robin and Maurice have pretty much covered it. It's it's the issue of there is no way forward that doesn't involve a lot of pain and suffering. We're already seeing that. It's going to get worse. The thing that I hope and want to hold on to and certainly is a major focus of the ethos of the kinds of things that we publish at Uncanny is reminding people that we do better when we take care of each other and when we commit collectively to the concept that we are better off taking care of one another than trying to be deeply individualistic in ways that are selfish and detrimental to society as a whole. That is, at this point, practically countercultural in many places, because American individualism in, it, in all of its John Wayne ruggedness is so pervasive in um, parts of our culture that people literally can't, you know, there's all sorts of memes about people joking about the end times because they are survivalists and they've got their bunkers all set up and they're ready to defend them and theirs. And the folks 
in the fiction that I tend to prefer are the ones that look at each other and say, how do we survive this together? How do I help you to make sure that you're still here? And the communities that grow out of that tend to be very strong communities, and they're communities that have the ability over time to adapt uh, and to survive in ways, you know, all the zombie apocalypse literature that's out there, the communities that are the most successful are the ones that stick together and stick to the rules that they set for each other and hold each other accountable, because that's how you survive. I want to be hopeful, but history and experience have taught me that not everybody's on that page, and it takes a while to get people there, and that is ultimately the frustration of the build-up towards the point where we can get to the hopeful part. Well, thanks for being a downer, everybody. <laughs> no, um, humans, man. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's my job. Yeah. Uh, th there is actually one model. Th there are a couple of models for, but again, you, it, it's it's having that tone setter. Um, but one of the things that is interesting to look at is how other countries reacted to the French Revolution. Most of the other countries in and around Europe, in and around France, reacted, and and Britain. Britain was interesting because it was nearly on the point of a collapse. That was exactly like what was happening in France. And they saw what was happening in France and actually managed to pull back and change course. And that's an interesting thing to look at how they went about that. It provides a, a useful model. Unfortunately, we are missing several of the key pieces that they had to make that model. But it is for, for people who are writing fiction, knowing that there's a model out there means that this kind of thing that we're experiencing is not inevitable. It's just likely. Well, hopefully with what we're doing here and conversations like this and the work that you're doing in your community building, we can avoid the worst of it and get back to that groundswell of hope. I'm, I'm looking for the, the up after the down. Science fiction often relies on some kind of magic technology to help the story along or make it possible, whether it's faster than light travel or alien transports. What kind of magic technology would you like to come out of all the science that's happening in the pandemic? Uh, what I would like to see is a magical clearinghouse of shared information that fast-tracked peer review in a way that was safe and sustainable, and also incentivized people to share information instead of hoarding it. If we're talking about stuff strictly out of the pandemic. Also, better mask technology. I think strictly out of the pandemic, I want to see building better sustainable systems for taking care of each other. I mean, so much of the awfulness of this pandemic has been because it has exposed so many cracks in our systems that make it very, very clear who is valued in our society and who is less valued in our society and the systems that are set up to keep those demarcations as strictly in place as humanly possible by the people who are maintaining those systems. I would love to see some new systems spring up out of the remains of what we're going through. And I would like to see those systems be about equity and inclusion and good science and educating folks so that equity and inclusion and good science can help us move forward and survive climate change, which is the other thing that we're pointedly ignoring at the moment. If we survive this, that's what's coming next. And boy, howdy, is that scary. So, yeah. Uh, I think I'm pretty much in the same boat. You know, as I've been thinking through different uh, science fiction models, especially for my, my book and everything, it's, it all comes down to what, what, what are the kind of things I'd like to see different? 
One of the things would be, well, a different economic system, one that you know values people as its base, one that values teachers, values artists, values scientists, and then, frankly, a, a better educational system entirely. Are there ways we could educate uh, one another better? It boils down to, you know, can we value each other better? Or what are the systems we could put in place that would allow us to value one another better? Can I put in a plug for a book? It's called Stealing Worlds by Carl Schroeder. And the entire premise of the novel is about that there are enough resources on the planet. It's just that they're unevenly distributed. And using the technology that we have at hand now to, to, to distribute things fairly. Well, the answer I was looking for was jetpacks. So I think we're going to have to wrap this up. <laughs> We've all failed. <laughs> jetpacks are a terrible idea. I don't trust people with cars. The only thing worse than jetpacks is the whole idea of flying cars. Because I'm like, I'm looking at my kids right now going, you know, they try to push it on E as long as possible. So I can't imagine if those cars were flying, what that would look like. So, yeah, there's some technologies I'm not looking for. <laughs> You just heard my interview with Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, and Lynn M. Thomas. These future-telling conversations are, at their core, about hope. Hope that rational thinking will win out over fear. Hope that science will continue to help us make sense of the world. Hope that by working creatively and cooperatively, we can bring about a brighter future. If you're interested in supporting future-telling, Watching full episodes of the show, or even making a donation to support future programs, you can go to go.niu.edu slash futuretelling, where all of our past events are posted. If you're listening to this episode right away, you can also register for our next event on October 21st, 2020. The topic is Fear of First Contact, How Science and Fiction Inform Our Search for Alien Life. Our guests are authors Daniel Krauss and Patrick S. Tomlinson, cosmologist Clarence Chang, and science fiction expert Sata Prescott. Registration is free, but remember to register in advance to receive a link to the virtual event. Thanks to all of our guests, and thanks to all of you out there who continue to support science. Here's hoping for a better future. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.